This is The Guardian. Today, a week in Doha at a World Cup like no other. So we are uh, driving through what looks like a very futuristic city. What is what, what city is this? Oh, this is Alusail. It's the new city in Doha, and uh, we can say that this is, this is the future of Doha. It's Saturday, the nineteenth of November, the night before the start of the World Cup, and I'm in a car with Hussein Al Bahalika and his sister Khadija. They're both Qatari, and they're showing me around. And so over the past few years, how much has this city changed? How much has Doha, how have you seen Doha transform? It's a tremendous change, to be honest. We love our country and this makes it in another level. Uh, As you can see here, we have Al-Maha Island. This is the island that we told you in. Oh, that's an island. Yes, it's a huge island that has been... It's nighttime and the island looks like a giant theme park lit up in neon lights. I can see a Ferris wheel, and behind it, Doha's tallest buildings. They've been called a toy box skyline, different colours and shapes arcing into the sky. And because we're in the desert, everything has this hazy filter that makes it look like you're seeing it in a dream. And building this city, of course, has been for many people a nightmare. It's cost Qatar about $220 billion to ready itself for this event. And by some estimates, it's cost thousands of people, the ones who actually built it, their lives. So this is like, I mean, Doha has been preparing for this moment, right? We're, we're the night before the beginning of the World Cup. This is like a big, big moment for, for Qatar. What does this moment mean for the country? Well, as a Qataris, we are really happy. Even the people who live in Qatar right now, mm. they feel that they are seeing something that it almost was a dream. Mm and to a reality. For the past week, I've been in Qatar, reporting on a World Cup that many thought was impossible, and that lots of people have been really conflicted about. Qataris don't get that at all. They're so proud of the fact they're holding this tournament. And their plea to the world has been to just forget about the politics and all the controversies and just focus on the football. And so, a week into the World Cup, have people forgotten about the controversies? From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, inside the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. So it's Sunday morning, the morning of the World Cup, which starts tonight in about six hours. And I'm in Sutwa, if one of Doha's main tourist attractions. The market here has been a place where people have come to trade for hundreds of years. It's had a renovation a couple of decades ago, but it's full of these burrows and narrow alleyways selling local headdresses and gowns and leather goods and paintings and a lot of souvenirs for tourists. The journalists here in Qatar are still digesting a pretty extraordinary press conference delivered yesterday by FIFA's president Gianni Infantino, who has been pleading with the media and governments to just leave politics out of this tournament, but then used his last press conference before it all started to talk about politics. Today I feel uh, 
Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. He spoke in that vein for well over an hour. It was kind of bizarre, for many people pretty offensive, but also pretty fitting for what's shaping up as a very unusual tournament. I think for what we Europeans have been doing in the last 3,000 years around the world, we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons. Here in the streets, there are definitely the usual kinds of diehard fans that you see at any big sports event. How are you doing? We're doing great. Can I first describe all four of you are in very colourful kilts? We've got a French shirt, two Qatar shirts and a Dutch shirt. Yeah. So are you Scottish? Are you Dutch? Yeah, we're Scottish. But we um, got to come to the World Cup. We almost made it, so, but uh, uh, we're just here and represent. And we thought we'd put on some of the local uh, shirts today as well. Can I say what's conspicuous about you guys? None of you are in England shirts. No, <laughs> no, no, no. no. no, no. Father is. <laughs> Anybody but England. <laughs> I'd love to talk to you about your wonderful Welsh shirts and what you're hoping to get out of this tournament. Yeah, we're hoping to get a group as simple as that, my yeah. friend, yes. That would involve beating England, the USA and uh, Iran? Just just beat USA, draw against Iran, England will mess it up as usual and we'd be fine, you know. No, no problems, nothing to worry about. It'd be nice to beat them though, wouldn't it? But mates, we're, we're bigger than that. It used to be, as long as we beat the English, we didn't care, but now we're way above that. You Transcended know? We're, them. We're way, we're in the world groupings, yay, bring yeah. it on. But for many fans, especially those from Western countries, these first few days at the first Middle Eastern World Cup are about trying to just get their bearings, sort of blinking to life in this new country and trying to figure out what does a football tournament actually look like here? How long have you guys been in Doha? Uh, We came in yesterday. What are your impressions so far? Um, (laughs) To be perfectly blunt, it's all a bit... uh trying to get away around places. We got a little bit lost to start with, but now we've got our bearings today. So, nice bit of character in the supermarket this morning. Went to the Fan Fest last night. Which what was, was that? How was that? How was the Fan Festival? Very, very busy. Really? Very busy. Too busy? Too busy. Um, but And then we tried to get a, a few beers, £12 for a beer. £12? Very expensive. That's brutal. Yeah. And you can't get it anywhere else, so that's it. So, yeah. What do you make of the vibe in Doha? Does it, does it feel like a World Cup's about to start tonight? No. Not to me. It just feels it's lacking something. I'm standing here in the lobby of our very unglamorous hotel with Sean Ingle, the Guardian's chief sports reporter, and Louise Taylor, who covers football in England's northeast. Sean, 12 years of controversy, of preparation, all culminate tonight in the beginning of the World Cup. What's the vibe here in Doha? It's, it's quite hard to actually detect because normally at World Cups, when you walk through city centres a day or two before the tournament starts, it's vibrant, it's alive. Everyone is talking about the football. Here it's been a little bit different. I've been here in Doha for a week. Only last night when I was in the, the FIFA Fan Festival that I actually got a sense there were supporters here. So I'm really intrigued how this next month is going to go. There are more unanswered questions, I think, about this World Cup than most. 
Um, and yeah, well, I'm going to the first game tonight, so let's see what happens. And traditionally with the World Cup, there's always a bit of controversy, a bit of doubt about whether the host country can pull it off. And then once the football starts, things tend to just melt away and that becomes the focus. Do you think the same thing will happen at this World Cup? I think Gianni and Patino, for all his bizarre rant in this 57-minute monologue, a lot of people have found very offensive given he's not gay, given he, you know, he's not a migrant worker, given he earns millions of pounds a year, while the minimum wage here is, is £231 uh, sterling. Um, but there was one thing he said which was sort of true. He said the thing with football is there's a lot of people that are saying they won't watch because of the Qataris are bad people, because FIFA's bad people, uh, people. But when that ball gets rolling, they will watch. And I think that is true. Um, I expect there to be some difficulties in the next week. We will talk about them. That you know, We talked about them before, rather, with fans and transport and infrastructure. However... Once we're into the meat of the tournament, I do think the football will take over. And Louise, do you agree? Do you think that once a few matches have gotten underway, politics and all the other issues will just take a backseat? I really don't know. We just have to see how well it goes. And also there's different dynamics with different teams and different sets of supporters. How do the, for example, the England fans react? Because I gather that some of their accommodation perhaps isn't the best out in the desert in these repurposed shipping containers and there's clearly less alcohol than advertised. So how will, how will, they, how will they cope if, if the police get the security forces? You know, what's their mood? What's their spirit? I think, I think these are just unknowns. It's just really is a step into the dark. The first step into the dark was whether Qatar could do the basics getting people from wherever they were staying to the eight stadiums that have been set up for this event, seven of them completely new. And that night, to go to the opening match between Qatar and Ecuador, I took the city's metro system, also brand new, with an Ecuadorian guy named Ricardo who had just flown in with his family the previous day. The number of fans in Doha far outweighs the number of hotel rooms and apartments. And so when it comes to accommodation, people have had to get creative. And where are you staying? What kind of place? A hotel, an apartment? Uh, a cruise liner. You're staying on a cruise liner? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, what's that like? It's like a cruise. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. But it's, I mean, very nice. The thing is, it's kind of, I mean, it, it took us like 40 minutes to get from the cruise line to the, to the, the market thing that, that, that got us to the metro station. Really? So. And as we got closer to the stadium, we still weren't seeing that many Qataris, but thanks to the many Cameroonian fans in the city, the atmosphere definitely started to build. Here we go. The El Bait Stadium, once we finally got there, was, and I'm almost sorry to say this, really impressive. It looks like a giant Bedouin tent and it's difficult to admit that it looked amazing because we know the conditions in which it was built. Outside, it really did finally start to feel like a World Cup. The sun was going down, people were wearing national flags of Sudan, Morocco, Argentina, every country you can think of, and there was a band welcoming everyone to the stadium. As we got closer to kickoff, all at once, there they were, a huge number of Qataris. They arrived in a big group and they were in really high spirits and had even prepared a special chant. Everyone is welcome! Everyone is welcome! Everyone is welcome! Everyone 
But if the message was very controlled and the event very organised, at the moment where the entire world was looking at Qatar and its national team, there was still one thing that all the money in the world couldn't buy. And that's a good performance on the pitch. Qatar, unfortunately for them, did not rise to the occasion. They went down 1-0. And the South Americans are in front. And then 2-0. And never really looked like they were coming back. The only opportunity for Qatar in this first half. And it was a clear-cut one. Day two of the tournament, and the politics, it's still here. The lead-up to England's match against Iran is dominated by the question of whether the English squad will be allowed to wear their one-love armbands, a gesture of protest against Qatar's harsh anti-gay laws. Yeah, so I think we've made it clear as uh, a team and uh, the staff and an organisation that we want to wear the armband. Uh, I know... The FA are talking to, to FIFA at the moment, and um, I'm sure by, by game time tomorrow they'll have their decision. In the weeks leading up to this tournament, seven European teams, including England, had said their captains wanted to wear these armbands to acknowledge the concerns a lot of fans had about this tournament. By Sunday night, The Guardian was reporting that England had officially been warned by FIFA that if their captain, Harry Kane, wore the armbands, he risked getting a yellow card, which put him at risk of being banned from future matches. England decided not to take the risk. We've now heard that the Football Association and six other countries will not ask their captains to wear one-love armbands in this year's World Cup. They have been warned by FIFA officials that wearing the armband would be a breach of its rules and risk a sporting sanction. But that wasn't the only drama playing out on Monday morning. When I arrived at the Khalifa Stadium in Doha, I started speaking to fans of England's opponent, Iran. And I had expected them to be excited about facing off against a country that's had a pretty fraught relationship with theirs for many decades. But they weren't really focused on England at all. It felt like their real opponent that day was Iran's government. Was it a difficult decision to come to support Iran today? Uh, it's so difficult because you, you don't know you have to support this team or you, you don't. Uh, yeah. Right now, I don't know uh, what, what I have to do in the stadium. But, you know, we are Iranian. We have to support our team. Many Iranian fans were really ambivalent about whether they even wanted Iran to win, knowing what a propaganda victory that would be for the government. And they were desperate to see their team make some kind of gesture acknowledging the protests and the hundreds of people killed since they started. And as soon as Iran's national anthem started to be played, they got it. Iranian players not singing the national anthem of the Islamic Republic. To us, an extraordinary protest. When the football did finally get underway, it looked like the Iranian players didn't have their minds fully on the pitch, that they were thinking about other, maybe more important things. England won the game. The final score was 6-2. England have six in a game for a second World Cup in a row.
I was curious how fans were adapting to Qatar. And so the next morning, I went out to the Raudat Al Jahaniya fan village, one of the many budget accommodation facilities that have been built over the past few months around Doha. So we've pulled up to what looks like a construction site, to be honest. It's just on the outskirts of Doha. Qatar is pitching itself to higher end tourists. And so a lot of the accommodation it's built for this tournament has been pretty fancy and expensive. To try to cater to those who don't want to drop three or four hundred pounds a night for a luxury hotel room, it's thrown up these fan villages, which are basically small shipping containers built in rows in empty lots with green astroturf in between. And there's moving equipment, there's big holes in the ground. We reported earlier in the week that some of these sites were unfinished as recently as last weekend, and I had been in touch with an American guy, Pete Hesketh, who had booked accommodation at a couple of these sites a few months ago, and I wanted to see how he was getting on. So Pete, how many World Cups have you been to over the course of your life? Uh, This is my sixth one. Number six? Yes, yes, yeah. And so far, how does it compare to those, those other ones? Being able to go to so many games, we're going to eight games. I've heard of people going, I've heard of a guy going to 41 games, which is kind of ridiculous. Um, So that's the advantage. The disadvantage is, I mean, last night we noticed when we were going into the stadium, normally in, uh, you know, in Germany and in South Africa and Brazil, there was a lot of, a lot going on. a lot of chanting and singing, you know, before the games, for hours before the games. And part of that is because they serve alcohol. <laughs> so here we noticed a big difference. You know, it was kind of subdued a little bit. And in terms of what you're doing in between games, what are the options for fans other than obviously being able to watch two, three games in a day? What do you do in between? What can you do in the evenings when you're not watching a game? Yeah, well, so we've gone to... Um, some of the five-star hotels have nice pools, so we, we've done that. But we we're actually a little bit we we're a little bit bored there. There wasn't that much going on. You know, there were no there weren't people there excited about football. So it's tough because like now we're going to go to the fan village and it's going to be really hot and probably too hot. And then so then you're stuck going inside somewhere where you really want to be outside. So um, I think. You know, in the middle of the day, the middle of the day is tough. Yeah. So in contrast, like when you were in Brazil, when you were in Germany, other places, what did you do during the day? How did you fill the time in between games, which were less frequent because it was spread out across a pretty big country in those cases? Yeah. Well, in each case, it was different. In, in Germany, we, we went, they had the fan zones. I think that was the first year they had the fan zones. So we, we went to a lot of those fan zones and there was a terrific atmosphere. And, uh, you know, you see the Dutch and there's thousands of guys in orange dresses and drinking and having a great time. Um, and then in Brazil, we, uh, you know, we went to the beaches. We're in Ipanema Beach, so we'd, we'd go uh, swimming and things like that. And so if you were to rate the tournament so far in terms of fan experience out of 10, what number are you putting on it? Oh, boy. Um, I don't want to be too harsh because I feel like they're trying real hard. So, I, I don't know, I would say maybe, what, a 6 or something. It's, it's, not, it's not bad, but it's, it's a little early.
So FIFA had been hoping that once the football got underway, and it's been underway now for three days, that the issues around the tournament would begin to be forgotten. And so far, they haven't. Just last night, we reported that several Welsh fans were stopped from entering the Wales-US game because they were wearing rainbow bucket hats, which was interpreted by security at the ground as a political statement supporting LGBTQ rights, and that wasn't allowed. The people involved also claimed it was just the women who were stopped and had their hats confiscated, not the men, which adds another really ugly layer to the story. Ben Fisher is with me. He's a Guardian journalist, and he covers football in the Midlands and Wales, and he was at the stadium last night. Ben, Tell me about what happened. Quite shocking, really. Uh, shouldn't shouldn't be happening. I mean, it shouldn't be happening, right? Like FIFA have said in the lead up to this to this tournament that rainbow flags, rainbow bucket hats would not be an issue. People could wear those. So why hasn't that actually been implemented on the ground? Yeah, and I think that well, that that's the million dollar question. But I think the FAW are investigating that exact point. I think it's quite alarming as well. It kind of marries with the mixed messaging that we've seen over the last few days. Circumstances changing, you know, very quickly or without any warning. The beer ban being, you know, beer was allowed and it wasn't allowed and then armbands were allowed and then armbands weren't allowed. Yeah, and, you know, from the FAW's point of view, like England and some of the other nations, they were very strong in saying we will defy FIFA. And obviously when it actually cut to the chase and when it came to it, it was a different message. And it was similar really with, with these hats, you know, it's... It's, it's a hat, it's, it's multicoloured, it shouldn't, um, shouldn't be an issue. It was quite intimidating, I have to say. I mean, I'm experienced enough to, to be able to cope with it, but if it had been a, a young person, a young girl, who hadn't been prepared for that, then I think it would have been a very unpleasant and intimidating experience. I think great on people. It just slowly sort of wears people down. It erodes people's experience a little bit. You know, even last night, people who wouldn't have had a bucket hat confiscated overhearing examples of these cases. It's just, it's not what people come to football matches for. It's not what people get into football for. So um, definitely a few teething problems, which, you know, are to be expected. But I just think some of these signs are just a little bit alarming. Coming up, the political causes that are welcome in Doha, and the ones that aren't. The idea of taking politics out of football has been the message that FIFA and Qatar have been pushing for months, and their argument is that sport is somehow different. It's a sacred arena where we can forget about the things that divide us as countries, as societies, and focus instead on what unites us, which is football. And that's not really a convincing argument for a lot of reasons, including that if you're a gay or trans person, you advocating for your basic right to exist is not something you can really be expected to just forget about for 90 minutes. Who gets the luxury to do that and who doesn't? That is a political choice. It's Tuesday, a few days into the World Cup, and we finally had a proper football story. See, suddenly here, Argentina, and they're now behind Alda Sururi. The golden boy of Saudi Arabian football. Saudi Arabia coming from behind to beat Lionel Messi's Argentina 2-1, breaking the tournament favourite's 36-game winning streak and triggering massive celebrations across Saudi Arabia and a public holiday the next day. (laughs) 
I was at the Tunisia match against Denmark, a much more boring game. And outside the stadium afterwards, I ran into some Saudi guys wearing the country's green flag around their necks. And I tried to ask them about how they were feeling, but kept getting interrupted by Tunisian fans. Alhamdulillah, we get the win. Is this the biggest day in Saudi Arabian football? Coming up to the Saudis, congratulating them, telling them what they started, the Tunisians would continue, and saying they'd given hope to the whole Arab world. Yeah, they, they give hope for, for everyone. So uh, Saudi, they start and will continue, inshallah. And that wasn't all. Tonight in Doha, Saudi Arabians are everywhere. They're dancing in groups, they're walking around with their families. The kids have the flags of Saudi Arabia and Qatar painted on their cheeks. The Qataris are even projecting the Saudi flag on the side of some of their skyscrapers. And if you know anything about this region, then you'd know that is extraordinary. In 2017, Saudi Arabia led a blockade of Qatar by its neighbours in the Gulf. They demanded Qatar shut down its news channel Al Jazeera, that it cut ties with Iran, that it hand over Saudi and Emirati dissidents who had sought refuge in Doha. And there were even reports that Saudi Arabia was threatening to invade Qatar. The countries involved signed a peace agreement earlier this year, but things have still been a little bit tense. Until tonight, when it looks like both sides are using this win to send the message that, for now, hostilities are over. Qatar and Saudi Arabia are friends again. And it underlines the idea, I think, that even once the football starts, politics is still there. It's never really far away. And... When it comes down to it, nobody really wants politics out of this tournament. It's just that some forms of politics are welcome, and some are not. So, Sean Ingle, we're a few days into this tournament now. What's your read on it so far? How does it compare to the tournaments that you've, been, you've covered in the past? Well, this um, World Cup feels much more like an Olympics than an actual World Cup. Normally, when it comes to these mega football tournaments, the build-up is dominated by who's in form, who's not. Is a player injured? Is, are they not? But this one has just been news, news, and more news. And why do you think that is? Why do you think uh, Qatar has not been able to just shake all of the controversy in the way that even countries like, like Russia, South Africa, Germany before it were able to do? I mean, I think partly it's because, actually, when we look back, uh, when journalists went to Russia four years ago, it very quickly became rah-rah. It became about the football. And I think some of the news journalists here think, actually, uh, we probably didn't do what we should have done in terms of scrutiny. And I think Qatar has paid, has suffered um, for that. And maybe if this tournament was held four years ago, it wouldn't have had quite the the interest. Um, I also think there's been a few uh, self-inflicted own goals if Qatar had have said five years ago, we're a conservative Muslim country, we are going to ban alcohol from the stadiums, um, I think it would have blown over quite quickly. Instead, they did it 48 hours before the first match. That inevitably was going to create huge issues. You've said with previous tournaments that eventually the politics and all the controversy does fall away and people start to focus on the football. Do you think that is going to happen here at some point, even, if, even though it hasn't happened yet? I do. Uh, I was chatting to one um, person connected with a, 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 a national team, and I'll leave it as vague as that. And they said to me, remember, we've had COVID, we've had lockdowns, there's a cost of living crisis. 
you can't keep banging the drum about all the things we've been banging the drum about. At some point, people just want to enjoy themselves, be happy, watch the football, cheer on the national team. And I think there is an element of truth to that. And I think when England get to the last 16, if they do, when they get to the quarterfinals, if they do, inevitably, that will be the focus. What I hope as well, though, that we keep two balls in play. We keep that sort of, whatever national team you, you cheer and support and how much you enjoy the football, that's great. But there should also be a second ball in play, which we don't forget when we, when we look at these gleaming new stadiums that some people have died in the process of, of building them, that there's still a lot of issues here as well. Germany played Japan in their first match and the German players found a way to do what England couldn't and make some gesture of defiance to the way FIFA has tried to restrict what teams can do and say out here. The German players covered their mouths in their team picture and some wore rainbow signs on their boots, obviously in solidarity with gay supporters and in protest at Qatar's laws against LGBTQ people. It is a very powerful statement that the Germany team uh, are making. We've just had a uh, statement from the German Football Association, the DFB, and they say it wasn't about making a political statement. Human rights are non-negotiable. That should be taken for granted, but it still isn't the case. That's why this message is so important to us. Denying us the armband is the same as denying us a voice. We stand by our position. This game, football, is supposed to reflect the state of the world. And the world right now isn't that united. It isn't peaceful. And so maybe it's appropriate that a World Cup in 2022, wherever it's being held, can't escape that feeling of division and crisis. Though it's also worth noting that as you might be able to hear behind me, there are fans here from all over the world who have managed to just tune it all out. They're going to games, they're partying, and they don't care very much about this other stuff. But for me, after spending a week here, the memory that I think will stay with me doesn't have anything to do with the problems that Qatar hasn't been able to shake. It's from the matches I've been lucky enough to watch from the media stands. And it's the sight of people in these venues wearing jumpers, sweaters, some of them in jackets. The air conditioning inside the stadiums is really effective. And at some point, you realise that we're three or four decades now into a climate crisis. And here we are sitting in the desert inside these gigantic stadiums in a country that's become the richest in the world per capita by exporting fossil fuels that we're all lining up to buy. And that in the middle of all this, we're feeling cold. People here are cold. <laughs> Qatar has said that this tournament is close to carbon neutral, but environmentalists have raised serious questions about that. They say the organising committee has underestimated this World Cup's carbon footprint and questioned whether so many million tonnes of emissions can really be effectively offset by green investments and projects. So maybe in that sense... The problem isn't there's been too much focus on politics at this tournament. Maybe one day soon we'll look back and think the problem was there wasn't enough.
FIFA have said that notwithstanding the reports of people having rainbow clothes taken off them and players not being allowed to wear armbands, everyone is welcome at this World Cup and it doesn't tolerate discrimination of any kind. Thanks very much to Sean Ingle, Louise Taylor, Ben Fisher, Pete Hesketh and Hussein and Khadija Al-Buhalika for giving us their time and thoughts for this episode. Before we go, if you haven't already, stay in touch with everything happening at this tournament for the whole month by listening to Football Weekly, which for the next few weeks is coming out daily, available each day wherever you listen to Today in Focus. Just search for Football Weekly in your podcast app. And on Wednesday, Today in Focus is going live. Join me and Nasheen Iqbal on Wednesday evening next week for a live streamed event. Looking back at some of the major news stories of 2022, we'll be joined by political editor Pippa Crera, UK technology editor Alex Hearn, and foreign correspondent Emma Graham Harrison. Tickets are available by searching for Guardian Live or follow the link from our podcast page. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Lucy Hoff. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we're back Monday. This is The Guardian.